Well, what a delight to hear the voices of the saints of my church preaching those truths into my ears and into my heart where I need them. Church, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless it and that as it's proclaimed, as it's preached and heralded right now, uh, that you would work it into our hearts. You would still our souls, that you would call us to yourself, Lord, and that we would learn your heart and your love more. I pray that you would do this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 12, 2 Chronicles chapter 12. Dear brothers and sisters, what do we do when we have sinned? What will the Lord do when we sin? Will he stop treating us as his dear children? Will his love fail or maybe temporarily suspended until we better our spiritual credit score? If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of sin and trusted his righteous life to count for yours and to trust his death on the cross as counting as your punishment, and if you believe that his resurrection from the dead gives you a new life as God's son or daughter rather than enemy, and also that his resurrection secures your resurrection from the dead, If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has sworn that he will always be your loving father and you will always be his beloved child. He will not stop treating you as his child. He will not permit you or leave you in your sin. And he will use his wise and perfect wisdom and power over every molecule on the earth to bring you to repentance. He will also not pause his love and affection for you because you are loved. The scriptures say you are loved in Christ. Your own relationship with God is sealed by Christ's life and his death and resurrection, not by your life. Now we come in our story as in our history of Israel's Uh, Israel's redemptive history, we we come into the place where Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. Judah, which is ruled by uh, by the the sons of David to the south, and Israel, which is ruled by whichever king can find a way to get on the throne. They rule essentially by strength and cunning, but not by the covenant of the Lord. Now, God has promised that When the sons of David would stray, those who are ruling over Judah, the southern tribes, God has promised that when the sons of David would stray, he would discipline them. He would discipline them with attacking armies, but that he would not end his promise to David. The covenant would stand. And when the son of David prayed in repentance on behalf of all this people, the Lord would be eager and the Lord would actually be delighted, not begrudging, but would be delighted to respond with grace and redemption. And here we see of God's faithfulness to those promises that he'd made to Solomon. The promises that when, his, when the son of David 
together with his people, fall into sin. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to watch as God keeps this promise. 2 Chronicles chapter 12, 1-5. to When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukiim, and Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, Thus says the Lord, you abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Thus far the word of the Lord. That brings us to our first point. Rich blessings will be received by the great son of David and his people with glad thankfulness. Rich blessings will be received by the, will, will be received by the great son of David and his people with glad thankfulness. I wonder if you noticed the setting for the fall into sin. What was the setting? The chronicler, he wants the people of God to know that this happened when Rehoboam was established and strong. This is the setting. God spared Rehoboam from the complete removal of his reign. Remember, Rehoboam was foolish. Even though he and, bo- he and his father were, were both uh, people who had given great reasons for the Lord to break his covenant with David... God spared them from that fate because of the oath that he swore to David and all of his sons after him. God spared Rehoboam, even though Rehoboam had acted foolishly, and God actually established him firmly. God made him strong. He made his reign secure. There was a sense that he would not fall. Perhaps even that he could not fall. This setting... These blessings from the Lord were taken for granted by the son of David and his people. And because of that, they abandoned the law of the Lord. Now, I want us also notice uh, there is this kind of open question. Was it the son of David's sin or his people's sin that brought this disaster? Who abandoned the law of the Lord? The son of David or his people? Both. Actually, in the book of 1 Kings, the focus is on the people's sin rather than on Rehoboam's sin. The author says the people of Judah sinned. The point of the difference here in Chronicles is that the Lord is calling his people's attention to the fact that in, in sin and rejection and even in repentance and restoration... The Lord is going to focus his attention on the representative of his people, the son of David. So even when the the people sin, he's going to focus their destruction and the punishment on the sins of whatever man is occupying that seat of the son of David. And so too with uh, with, with repentance and restoration, God is going to focus in on whoever the son of David is at that time. Now you may have noticed That our point talks about the great son of David. Rather than on Rehoboam, 
Now, why is that? Well, that's because the returned exiles, right, 500-ish years later, they're not being trained as they read this account. They're not being trained to look to Rehoboam, the past son of David, to represent them. He's dead. What are they being encouraged to? They're being encouraged to look to the present son of David. They're being encouraged to look at a man named Zerubbabel, the present son of David for them. They're not supposed to see themselves as little independent people, each with their own little mini covenant with God. They were supposed to see themselves as united to the son of David and God's oaths to the son of David. God gave to Israel, at worst, a representative, which was that what they deserved, a man who was exactly like them in their sin. But this is beautiful. At best, if he kept the law, he could bring great blessings and joy, and it would be their joy. And so Israel is being taught here to hope to share in blessings which God had sworn to the son of David. And this is in part why the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, that's in part why his, his righteousness could be credited to his people, that he could stand in their place of judgment to die for their sin. So Rehoboam, the second to hold the title of son of David, he responded to peace and security and strength and blessings from the Lord. He responded just like his people did and would have responded without him. His heart turned away from the Lord. But this is not so for the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no shadow of sin in our son of David. And so there's no risk that God giving him more peace and more security and more strength and a, a greater reign than Rehoboam and Solomon had, there's no risk that that could lead to him falling into sin. That's not going to expose any little cracks of sin that were already there. There's no risk that this is going to lead the Lord Jesus' heart to turn away from the law of God. And there's no risk that confidence or stability or assurance that he gives to his people would cause him and them into, to fall into sin. I want us also to see here that blessings and strength and security are not the cause of sin. We must not conclude that the cause of sin was the rich, undeserved blessings of God on the king and his people. They were not the cause, they were the occasion. They, sorry, they were not the cause, they were the occasion. Because God is not anti-blessing. He's not anti-material blessings. He doesn't believe that good food and security and delightful joy and an enjoyable life is bad. He doesn't think that. These gifts were from the Lord. He actually delights to give his children these good gifts. And I want us to make no mistake, the, the blessings which God swears to give to his eternally beloved children the people of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These blessings include sweet material blessings. A life without pain, without crumbling foundations, without the possibility of sickness, without the possibility of hunger, without loneliness, without a failing body. 
And the way he promises to accomplish that is not by, take, by, by removing us from this world and removing bodies permanently from us, but restoring the world and restoring our bodies. And that we would, we would dwell with him in a renewed world that is material and enjoy material blessings from him. Now, ultimately, those blessings will be fully enjoyed in the next life. But that doesn't mean that in, his, in, in this life, he doesn't care about those things or that he thinks that they are wicked or sinful. And we could turn to the Lord's Prayer to see the heart of the Lord expressed. He teaches his dear people to pray for our daily bread. That's going to include all the blessings that are not eternal, but are still good. And we still long for them and we, we even need them. Things like peace and freedom from persecution, from things like food and shelter and family and, and health and security. Now, we have to reject the prosperity gospel in all its detestable wickedness, but it would be just as dangerous to let the poverty gospel have its way. The idea that a person is more holy the harder their life is. The worse a person's health and finances or the more persecuted the church is, the harder, life God, uh, the harder life that God brings, the less sin you will have. Some have even suggested that we ought to pray for persecution so that the church will become more pleasing to God. But this flies in the face of 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First, then, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high places, high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Thinking that blessings are the cause of sin, we have assumed that God prefers persecution for the church. But God instructs us clearly to pray for peace with the government, so that believers might lead peaceful and quiet lives. Yes, godly and dignified, but also peaceful and quiet lives. Rehoboam's blessings from God set him in a place of peace and quiet, and his whole people were set in a place of peace and quiet. It was the lack of godliness and dignified living that was the problem. Now, what is the actual problem here? Now, the passages that bracket ours give us a hint do you remember what it was said of the people who left Israel and came to Judah to be with the king, the, the, the son of David and the temple? What was it said of them? That they had set their hearts to seek the Lord. At the end of, of Rehoboam's reign, we're going to read it today. His life is summarized as doing evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. This is the issue. There's not a problem with peace and security and blessings. It's a matter of the heart. And when scripture talks about the heart in relation to the blessings of God, material blessings, it, it sees it, it, there's lots it says, but I want to focus on two primary things that it sees in, as a matter of the heart. So the first heart problem is forgetting to thank God for these blessings. Forgetting to delight yourself in the giver of the gift. To enjoy God himself and give him credit to recognize these gifts is from his hand. 
Romans 1, in Romans 1, Paul diagnoses part of the, the problem, what the heart of the problem with the people of the world and, and us included is that though we knew God, we knew that he was the one who gave us all these gifts and he was the creator. We failed to acknowledge him and thank him. So good gifts, even material gifts that, that may not last and may even, uh, they, 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 you actually can't even take them with you when you die. Good gifts though, they are to be received with great joy to the Lord. Acknowledge him as the giver and thanking him. Using these gifts, not to just delight in the gift, but to delight in the giver. What is also certainly true is these gifts are not to be used for evil. So don't use the thing that God gives you to dishonor him, to sin against him. But the primary focus here is that we use these gifts to thank him. It's not simply enough that we don't use these gifts to sin against him, but that we are not moved to thankfulness with those gifts. Again, Paul's letter to Timothy is going to help us answer this question. First, Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So gifts are to be received with Thanksgiving, and it makes them holy. This is what Paul says. Now, that's not saying it makes sinful things holy, right? It's not making pornography or murder holy. What it is saying is that gifts, which you could say are good gifts, but are essentially going to be used for good or bad, it, it makes them things that glorify God. This is something that will help your relationship with God rather than harm it if you thank the Lord for it. Paul is saying that Forbidding these good gifts is actually preaching a different gospel. So we are to receive good gifts with thankfulness, to be thankful people. This is how we can prevent ourselves or God, how God would prevent us from becoming like Rehoboam and his people. The first step is that they did not respond with thankfulness to the Lord who had given them these good gifts. The second heart problem that I want to point out is one of priorities. It takes, bad priorities takes advantage of peace and quiet as an opportunity for the flesh. I want to read from 3 John chapter 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to you your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, this is a favorite verse of the prosperity gospel. They, they tend to turn this into a promise. God had promised not just holiness, but also great health. Brothers and sisters, the solution is not to reject this prayer as a good prayer but simply to see it as just not a promise. See, John is actually praying for his people the way that the Lord Jesus would, praying 
for their daily bread. But he is putting it in perspective. It is not wrong to thirst for water or hunger for food or to long for good friendship or to long for marriage or to long to be able to stably pay your bills. It's not wrong to long for the pain in your knees to go away. The problem is if you long for that more than you long for righteousness. When you would trade righteousness to get more of that. It is a matter of priorities. Because whatever suffering we have now, brothers and sisters, is only temporary. But this holiness that is from the Lord is eternal. The gift of not being his enemies anymore, but to be living eternal life as his dearly beloved, redeemed and holy people. That brings us to our second point. God trains his people to see sin as slavery. God trains his people to see sin as slavery. So Rehoboam and his people turn from the Lord in response to his blessings of peace and quiet. And then Pharaoh of Egypt comes to bring utter destruction to Judah and Jerusalem. He destroys much of Rehoboam's security. He destroys fortified cities and and the security which brought peace and quiet to him and the people. That's removed by Shishak, the Pharaoh. And he comes right up to Jerusalem. And you've got Rehoboam and the princes of Judah sitting there, sitting ducks. Nothing standing between them and utter destruction. Then the Lord sends a prophet to warn of the coming doom. I want you to notice Rehoboam and, his, and the people in their response. Let's continue reading in 2 Chronicles 12, verse 6 now. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him, that they may know my service and the service of kings of the country, of the kingdoms of the countries. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Rehoboam and his princes acknowledge their sin and the righteousness of the Lord. They recognize that God is right in what he's doing. This is what they deserved. They don't stand in judgment over God and for bringing this, but they recognize God's right to judge them. God responds by bringing them some deliverance. You notice that? Some deliverance. He agrees to spare them from full destruction that was going to be coming on them. They were helpless, sitting ducks. But he does, he does decree that Shishak, the Egyptian pharaoh, will conquer Jerusalem without destroying it. So that Rehoboam might bend the knee to another king. To treat another king like a master. The purpose, says the Lord, I wonder if you notice that, was that they might know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Do you remember that God promised to treat Israel, but also the sons of David, he promised to treat them as his sons. He promised to discipline them. He promised to shape their hearts. He promised to train them. He promised to care more about their holiness than they cared about their holiness. He promised to care more about their relationship with him than they cared. And so God promised not to leave them in their sin, 
Not to utterly destroy them for their sin, but also not to permit their sin. And so God would always, after punishing them, he would always keep a remnant and bring back this small, humble remnant back under the son of David to be his people, to keep his promise, to treat them like sons, and then to bring them back to himself. So God also wants Rehoboam and Judah to see the difference between being his servants and being the servants of a human king. He wants to see what life as rebellion, he wants them to see what life in rebellion of God, uh, rebellion to God is actually like. We think it's freedom. It's not. It's just swapping that service for another service. Swapping the Lord as master to another master. And that master is not a good master. That master has not sworn any oaths to them. That master has not sworn everlasting, enduring, steadfast love. That master's steadfast love does not reach to the heavens. That master is selfish. And so God trains his people to see that being his servants is not a curse, but is a good thing. And so it is with the people of the great son of David, not just the people of Rehoboam, the second son of David. It is so with us, the people of the great son of David, who belong to him by faith. God promises to keep the people of the Lord Jesus. He promises to hold us. He didn't choose us because we are holy, so our unholiness is not going to make him unchoose us. He's taken the punishment for our sin. So we are not destined there for wrath, but for glory, since he took the wrath of God for us. He has promised to hold us and to not lose even one. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't care about our holiness. No, he has promised to treat us as sons and to always treat us as sons. That means he trains us to see sin as slavery. He doesn't permit us to stay in sin and to enjoy slavery to sin. He wants us to know that serving him is freedom and that sin is not serving nothing. It is a slavery to a wicked master who desires your destruction rather than your good and your joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, which Brother Caleb read for us, the writer of the Hebrews reminds them that the sufferings that they endure are not for their condemnation, not to get them what they deserve, but it is God treating them like sons and preparing them for glory. This is the Lord's love he is bestowing on them. It is a hard love sometimes, but it is a wise and it is gentle love. So brothers and sisters, all the difficult circumstances, as well as the pleasant ones, they are the Lord's loving and wise work to cause us to endure, to persevere and to be released from bondage to created things, from the bondage of viewing and worshiping and treasuring them in a way that's only good to treasure and worship the Lord. Now, God still hates sin. He still hates our sin. Now, Psalm 115 verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. 
and the one who loves violence. So unlike the unredeemed sinners whom he hates in their sin, he loves the redeemed while also hating our sin. This is that he does not give us what we deserve, not to condemn us, but his discipline is part of his shepherding work to keep our hearts and to bring us home. Difficult things happening in our lives is not a sign that God is displeased with us. And we have to note that the book of Job screams at us telling us that difficult things are not a sign that you have unrepentant sin that you just don't know about. No. All of these things is God's wise and tender care. Only he knows the purpose. Now we know the ultimate purpose is for our joy and to know his love more. We are not to assume these things. Now the lesson that God is teaching the returned exiles is not if you are suffering, repent of your sin. He's not teaching them, if you are suffering, repent of your sin. That's not what he's teaching them. He is teaching them, if you are sinning, repent of your sin. In good times and in bad times. And why? Because he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. Not, be, not because you are able to pay for it, but because he has already paid for your sin. He is committed not just to your forgiveness, but he's also committed to your freedom from sin and your life as a son or daughter loved by and loving God. And he does not apologize for using his perfect control of all things, your bank account, your neighbors, your health, your government, your family, your sight, your intellect, your possessions, the weather, he does not apologize for using his control over all those things to keep his promises, to hold you as his dearly beloved blood-bought child. That brings us to our third point. The Lord gives his people the gift of a humble son of David and hears his prayers. I want you to notice the difference between the posture of Rehoboam at the beginning of his reign and the end of his reign. Let's take a look at that. Verse, 12, uh, verse 9 of chapter 12, 2 Chronicles 12, 9. So Sheshach, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made, and Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard came and carried them and brought them back to the guardroom. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, conditions, in, uh, conditions were good in Judah. So King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was name of the Ammonite and he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. You remember what he looked like when he first took the throne? He's bragging. He's bragging that the, the muscles in his pinky finger are greater, are bigger than his dad's quads. You remember that guy? Now look at him cowering. He's afraid to leave his palace to go to the, to go to the temple. He's, he's now taken, he had to replace the, the big gold shields that his dad made. 
and he's replaced them with bronze ones. And he's terrified of losing these things. He's keeping them locked up when they're not in use. And they basically follow him from, the, from his palace to the temple and from the temple. He's so terrified, he's cowering. The Lord humbled him. You could say the Lord humiliated him. Now, this was God keeping his covenant. The covenant held. The people and their king, the, the son of David, sinned. God brought destruction. The people and their king prayed. They, God humbled the king so he would pray. And God heard it. It worked. But it wasn't the king's prayer that worked. It wasn't the king's repentance that worked. It was the Lord's promise that worked. God was eager to respond. He had sworn to respond. And he actually brought about that repentance. Now, brothers and sisters, we too have a humble son of David for when we sin. And our king, our son of David was not forced to be humble like Rehoboam was. He humbled himself. He offered up his own life so that his people could be forgiven and redeemed from sin, so that they could be spared from the wrath of God. Now, in the book of 1 John, we read that Jesus is our advocate when we sin. He's our prayer when we sin. Rehoboam was supposed to take that position, and he was basically forced into it. Kicking and screaming. Okay, fine, I'll do it. But the Lord was faithful to provide a son of David who was humbled. Brothers and sisters, Rehoboam is dead. So is David and so is Solomon. Their bones are in the grave and they cannot be our son of David advocate. But the Lord Jesus Christ reigns and he lives to be our advocate when we sin. So brothers and sisters... Let us turn from sin and repent of sin where we see it. I want to say a word to our unbelieving guests. We're grateful for believing guests, but I want to say a word to our unbelieving guests and maybe our children who have not yet turned to the Lord and trusted in the gospel. You have no advocate. You have no son of David to pray for you when you sin. All you have is God treating you as an enemy, that's all you will have to look forward to. You are not redeemed. You do not have a sacrifice for your sin. Oh, but the offer stands. If you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, he will forgive you of your sin. He will, he will free you of it. He will be your advocate. And his prayers are effective because the Lord has sworn that they will be. His death covers your sin. So turn to him. And now to the brothers and sisters who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have confidence when we sin that he will hear our prayers, that he will forgive us. And so this does not, it's not a call for us to stay in our sin, but to repent of it. Brothers and sisters, Rehoboam submitted to the Lord in order to avoid wrath. Did you notice that? He humbled himself and so was spared the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, you see that that's the opposite of our Lord Jesus Christ, our son of David? 
Did you see that the Lord Jesus, his submission, his humbling himself was directly not to avoid the wrath of God, was directly into the path of the wrath of God for not the wrath of God for, our, for his sin, but for our sin. That's the beautiful humility that the Lord Jesus Christ shared. Not that the Lord had to humiliate him, but that he humbled himself. Not to avoid wrath, but to face the wrath of God for our sin. That is the love of God in Christ Jesus that belongs to us. And so if God was faithful to hear the coerced, humble prayers of Rehoboam, how much more will the Lord God be faithful to hear the voluntary and loving an eager, humbling submission of our Lord Jesus Christ, our son of David, who humbled himself so that we would be spared from the wrath of God and that he would face it instead of us. So dear church, let us run from sin by embracing thankfulness, by receiving God's good gifts with thankfulness, and let us confidently repent of sin and run into our Father's arms. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you did not leave us in our sin. And also that you did not leave us without a humble son of David to pray for us. And not only to pray for us, but to suffer instead of us and to take the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. Oh God, let us be people, the people of the great Messiah, where blessings do not cause us to sin, but they cause us to rejoice and thank you and glorify you and worship you. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to repent of sin. Oh Lord, would you make us repent? Would you not leave us in our sin, but call us back, bring us back, be faithful to discipline us, to shape us so that we don't love sin, but we love you. And Lord, let us never lose confidence that you will hear us and receive us when we repent in the Lord Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.